Busy day, huh? Well, interesting. Um, you know, I was um, in, in one of my 14, you know, other day jobs. Um, I, I, I provide sort of consulting to CNN on what the court's actually doing. So I was in the Supreme Court cafeteria when the opinion came out. And then, you know, after helping them walk it through for about an hour, went outside to the plaza and helped their, their, their live crew report on it. So that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. So were, were you on like, uh, like live from the Supreme Court cafeteria or not until you went outside? Not until I went outside. Yeah. Um, but we did, I mean, the, you know, the Supreme Court has such, um, for lack of a better word, antiquarian rules about media coverage. Yeah. And so, you know, SCOTUS blog does the same thing where they have folks sort of set up in the cafeteria because that's the, the cafeteria is the closest place you can get to publicly um, there where, where, you know, it's the closest place to the public information office, which is where they give out the opinions. Oh, so it's a total like uh, internal architectural <laughs> kind of uh, arbitrage kind of thing, right? And then, exactly, then, right. So somewhere between the, the court's rules and the court's architecture leads <laughs> to the cafeteria being ground zero for, you know, SCOTUS watchers on the day of big opinions. And so, what equipment are you able to have in the cafeteria? Are you able to have your cell phone with you? Yeah, so the, the other thing about the cafeteria is because it's public space, none of the court's rules about recording devices and other things apply. So you can have anything in there that you're allowed to you know, bring through security. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. So are there, um, are there like lots of interns in there wearing running shoes, just oh, waiting yeah. for oh, 10 yeah. o'clock? The, the, the running of the interns. Well, cause the thing is, so what happens is the opinions are handed out in the public information office. Um, and then basically it is, you know, the only, the fastest way to get the paper copy of the opinion to folks in the cafeteria and to the folks who are standing outside on camera is to literally run it to them. <laughs> so a bunch um, of 20 year olds in in like fancy clothes and running shoes exactly right and you know if this if the court were a little more technologically sophisticated um you might see them you know have the opinion go live online the second it's delivered um or any other ways but no this is how we do it now but this is what i don't i mean so the so the people on camera uh do they just need the paper opinion so they can be holding it i mean they're not reading it out there are they i mean they're, they're getting stuff in their ear from people like you who are in the cafeteria right yeah i mean it's a combination of both i think you know it's they're getting a lot of stuff in their ear but um you know some of the reporters especially the one i work with pamela brown from cnn um like to actually be able to you know it's not just tactile it's actually they, they want to see it for themselves i mean you know yes you're there's a point to which you're willing to just repeat what people are telling you in your ear, but then there's a point at which you want to be able to, you know, read the words yourself. Now, here's something I actually don't know. Is it faster? Because, you know, this morning, 10 o'clock rolls around. I don't go to SCOTUS blog. I don't go to anything else. I go to the Supreme Court's page. I go to latest slip, slip opinions, and I sit there and I hit reload. And it's, you know, Obergefell came up. The gay marriage case came up, I think, at like 10.02. Yeah, you yep. probably had it pretty fast, yeah. Yeah. Is there a delay at all? I mean, do the paper copies come out as they're, I mean... It, so I, the paper, yeah. the paper, the second that the justice who is reading the opinion says the docket number, the public information office hands out the paper copies. Um, and so I think this morning there was probably about a two minute delay um, between when the paper copies were handed out and when SCOTUS blog started posting it. Um, and it's also the other thing is it's one thing for SCOTUS blog to post that they have it. But then once you actually, you know, sometimes it's actually a much longer delay before SCOTUS blog posts the actual opinion online. Yeah. I mean, that's what I followed them in the past, but I found it's for me and they do a great job, but for yeah. me, it's faster just to go to the Supreme court's own site, go to latest slip opinions and hit and, reload. I'm telling you by 10 Oh two. Yeah. But I think today there. was unusual. I think usually it would be it not would, King versus Burwell yesterday. I mean, I'm t maybe it's faster now. Maybe it's not. I don't I, know. I, I, think, I think they're getting better, but I think a really good example is. 
um, gosh, I think it was Shelby County last year, where um, the opinion actually wasn't up on the website for a good 20, 25 minutes, um, even wow. as you know, folks were breaking it down and talking about it on SCOTUS blog. And, you know, because, I mean, there's plenty of folks have access to the hard. You, there's the folks who are in the courtroom who actually don't have the hard copy. Mm. And then there are the folks who are downstairs who do have the hard copy. And so there's plenty of access in the building to what the justices actually wrote. Um, and it's just a question of who gets it out there fastest. <laughs> and actually, my, my one funny sort of personal story from today. So I had, my, I had the copy that the intern ran to me of the opinion. I, you know, a small part of me had been wondering if we actually get a gay marriage opinion, you know, what would I, would I frame it? Would I, you know, hold on to it for posterity? Um, and outside <laughs> the court, um, when I was out with the CNN folks outside, I ran into Doug Hallward Dreymeyer, um, who argued the recognition question on behalf of the respondents. Um, so the couples in the marriage case. And Doug was telling me that he still hadn't seen the bloody opinion. Um, and it's like 1215. I was like, oh, well, shoot, take mine. Um, so, so there it went. <laughs> it's crazy. These information products, we have so many different mechanisms for distributing them. And and yet the folks who are the last to know are the ones who are actually in the courtroom listening to Justice Kennedy and listening to Chief Justice right. Roberts read their opinions. And we, we talked to Dahlia about this on, on our first show with her. Um, yeah, the one last summer, right? Yeah. Joe? And, and, uh, you know, part of this is like, you know, you, you, the opinion comes down and you want to start talking about it right away. But I think everybody remembers what happened with the CNN meltdown. Was it Bush versus Gore? Was it, <laughs> no, it was, it was worse. One? It was the first, it was the first healthcare case, which is actually part of Oh, why right. I, yeah, of course. And, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, actually, yeah. That, that's now why I work for CNN. <laughs> um, so they, after the first healthcare case and, and so what happened there was such a, it was such an, it was such an obvious um, good faith mistake. Like the guy on one end of the phone basically started reading from the syllabus. Yeah. And if you remember, the first part of the syllabus was the ACA cannot be sustained as an exercise of Congress's Commerce Clause authority. Right. But wait, there's more. Well, what I about the taxing the, authority? Of right, course, so, they hadn't heard that yet. And so, right, they hadn't heard that yet. And, and, and it's a market moving event. I mean, it's that's, right. And and so that's so the problem is is that they they sort of they read the he he it wasn't clear to the folks he was talking to on the other end that he wasn't done. Right. So I don't know how you guys look at when I'm looking at an opinion like today. uh, It's not like I was like no spoilers. I wanted to go right to the part of the, you know, I wanted to figure out what happened and then I would start reading it. Um, For me, I skip over the syllabus and I go right to the to you might call it the decreto language part of the syllabus. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, you see who wrote. Yeah, but even before that, the the disposition, right? It's going to either say affirmed, reversed, vacated or some combination thereof. I just look for the names of the justices. I don't even look up here. I'm well, just seeing who very, wrote it. That's very, that's very political of you. <laughs> well, I don't know. Experience, well, maybe. I mean, in maybe. the Obamacare one case, that would have helped though, right? Because that's yes. you, you go immediately to that list and, and you would know not to tell everybody in the world that Obamacare was struck down because it's right. unlikely that, that Breyer and Ginsburg right. and signed on to that. And, right? and, and, and yesterday and today are also great examples of that. You know, you look at healthcare yesterday and yeah. you see – you know the chief Kennedy and the four lefties. I, I, you know, you, other than whether they relied on Chevron or not, I could have told you the rest of the story at that point. Yeah. Um, and this morning too. I mean, this morning, you know, the bottom line mandate was reversed, um, and you know, Kennedy writing for himself and the lefties from those two points of information, right? You know, the the, tw- the twenty-eight page majority <laughs> opinion didn't actually add that much to that. It was. Were you expecting? Especially this opinion didn't have well, too much. That, to... that, that, that's that. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe we should get into that because that's another, I think, interesting thing to talk about. But yeah, I, this opinion especially was twenty-eight pages, not adding much to reversed Kennedy and the lefties. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I do want to get into it. Joe and I were talking about it before we started the show. And, and um, you know, we've laid our cards in the table about this before. We had a whole show about Judge Sutton's opinion, which we'll link up and, and about Posner's I mean, opinion. Yeah, we talked about Posner's opinion um, at length on one occasion. And, and I've only – I have to say – and just to preface everything that we might talk about to the extent we talk about this opinion, I've only read through it pretty quickly, uh, Kennedy's opinion. I actually spent a little bit more time with the dissents. And, um, well, the dissents are better. I yeah, <laughs> that's what I I was not super impressed with Kennedy's better, better opinion. by what can you can you say better by what metric? I mean, so so this is my own personal view, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm going to betray my biases. I think this is the right result, um, both you know politically and constitutionally. But I think it's the wrong reasoning, and I think that's been the central problem with all of Kennedy's, if we can call it now, his gay rights jurisprudence with yeah. Romer in 1996, with Lawrence in 2003, and with Windsor in 2012, which is that. Right. You know, he writes these sort of touchy feely, um, you know, opinions that 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 don't operate within the traditional bounds of Supreme Court doctrine in a way where we can say, oh, so this is a heightened uh, this is heightened scrutiny or this is a suspect classification or this is a new fundamental right that gets strict scrutiny. Yeah. Where instead he's committed to this project of I mean, today he was actually quite frank about it, of blending elements of liberty and equality in a way that sounds quite nice coming off the tongue. And it's, you know, it's mellifluous to the ear. Um, but insofar as actually operating as constitutional doctrine, you know, it's hard not to side with or not sympathize, at least with the conservatives who say, I don't get this. Like, what what does this mean? How is this? How does this rule square with the things we've done before? And I actually think it's, you know, uh, maybe even a bit dangerous. Um, I. You know, I, I don't necessarily fault it for not being fitting into existing doctrine or being doctrinalist. Um, although I think, you know, uh, so for example, I, one of the reasons I like Posner's opinion is is that it it does kind of chart a new course for um, a judicial scrutiny of legislative output, right? It, it has a different way of talking yeah. about that problem, which I found. But it's I not anti doctrinal. Kennedy right. seems almost anti doctrinal. Well, what Kennedy like, fails to do is to give you that reason why. Like, why should the court substitute its judgment for the legislature on this issue? Right, because without no, like, that why... Right, there's, no, yeah. there's no Caroline products discussion. Exactly. And, and I have to say, I, mean, I actually think one of the most remarkable stories of the past two days, because, I mean, if you look at the last... These are two pretty remarkable days for the Supreme Court. Um, and the most remarkable story, the remarkable story to me that hasn't been told yet is... The four, you know, more progressive justices wrote nary a word mm, in yeah. the housing, healthcare, and marriage cases. Mm, good point. Um, and and you know, I, I don't think anyone would wonder why they didn't say anything. Um, you know, I think when when Anthony Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts are writing the opinion you want them to write, you don't dare them to change their minds. That's what we, we were talking about this very thing before we were recording, and we right. came to the same conclusion. I think I'm no, saying, yeah, right. But 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 there comes a point. I mean, you know, in one sense, this is what you know. In Lawrence, at least O'Connor wrote about equal protection. Um, and so not having the kinds of opinions that mind you, if the situation were reversed, we probably would see from the righties, a Scalia concurrence or, a you know, a Roberts concurrence, um, you know, I think causes that much more mischief because I suspect that, you know, Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg, um, have the exact same kinds of doctrinal qualms about Kennedy's opinion that some of the conservatives do. They're just, you know, they're, they're not going to raise them because they don't want to push Kennedy away from the position they want to end up in. Right. And and they, I mean, I would have loved to have seen what they would have written. I mean, I, I think yeah. it would be very interesting. And because, well, and particularly with Kagan, um, 
you wonder what her what her kind of uh, Caroline products future is going to be on the court. I don't think it's fully been written, right? Like what no, her, what her theory or view is. Yeah, and, and I think that's I, I think that's actually the, the the unwritten story in you know Obergefell is um, Kennedy. You know, in Lawrence, Kennedy famously basically control F'd um, all of the <laughs> all of the possible references in the opinion to fundamental rights, to heightened scrutiny, to suspect classification, and made sure that they were all gone. Um, he actually didn't do that today, right? So there's language in the opinion where he refers to same-sex marriage as a fundamental right. Well, if that's true, does that mean strict scrutiny? He never says. Um, yeah. and, right? And, what is that? And, and when he says it, it's, it's also an equal protection violation, well, on what tier of the court's conventional equal protection jurisprudence? Right. Is, so, it, is it sex discrimination? Is it sexual orientation discrimination? If the latter, uh, whoa, that's new ground. We haven't done that before. And, and even, right. just, you know, just so none back. of this yeah. is there. Yeah, and he, even not to fit it in, just to say, okay, we've got these words, equal protection of the laws. They can't mean every inequality worked by law is illegal. because Which we all that, know. Because all laws right. are un, create inequalities. Right. And so you have to give a reason why this kind of distinction deserves this kind of look by us and you can call it strict scrutiny you can call right. it intermediate you can call it what you want but you need something which says here's you know here's the reason why for this distinction i'm demanding a rationale now his technique which does not do what you just asked for but does keep it from being just a free-floating equality principle is that he ties it to marriage as a fundamental right so he starts with that yeah. That's right. No, no, right right but, for, right for kennedy the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and so Right. So he takes he takes themes from due process, which is the fundamental right piece of it. And he takes themes from anti-discrimination, which is the equal protection part of it, and somehow gets from those two points to therefore this, there's a right to marry. Um, and, and to me, there are two problems with that. The first is, um, so what about a case like the Abbott Labs case in the Ninth Circuit? where the Ninth Circuit extends Batson um, and, you know, challenging jurors um, or challenging one side's use of peremptory challenges on the ground. They're trying to stack the jury or get all of the minorities off the jury. Ninth Circuit says that applies to sexual orientation because that gets heightened scrutiny. Um, Nothing in today's opinion tells us anything about that. Um, So that's still going to have to be litigated. Um, And second, and this is perhaps the bigger thing, this is not the first time we've seen a justice try to tie due process and equal protection together. Justice Thurgood Marshall um, had this whole long effort, this basically, you know, six, seven-year campaign from when he got on the court um, to basically have what he called fundamental interests, which were um, not quite fundamental rights, but sort of strong, important things like voting um, and like education that were especially vulnerable when um, discriminated, when, when, for example, poor folks um, were interfered with. Um, and what Marshall would say is, you know, if you add those two together, that's a real problem. Well, in San Antonio, in San Antonio school district versus Rodriguez in 1973, the Supreme court slammed the door on that whole theory. Yeah. Um, Kennedy is clearly bringing it back in the context of same sex marriage, but is it good for this train only? Yeah, I mean that's what you worry about. I mean, you need some because it's the theory is not there. I mean, if it if it's it, well, but there are phrases. I mean, he 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 talks toward the end about you know uh, the problem here is that we're subordinating people uh, in a way the equal protection clause tells us we can't. So there's right, an anti subordination principle, which is Reva Siegel's whole equal protection you know line of yeah. So uh, there so there are some bits and pieces here. I, look, I'm I'm with you guys. I I think it's deficient in some fairly dramatic ways, but but I I, I think. Um, if, if I were a circuit court judge 
and and I wasn't quite clear on how I should approach allegations of unlawful uh, discrimination against gay and lesbian people after this opinion, I think I would feel fairly confident that um, both that I don't need to be too fussy about doctrinal categories <laughs> and that if I conclude that the discrimination is wrongful because it sort of relies implicitly or explicitly on the notion that gay and lesbian people aren't quite people, like there's something fundamentally wrong with gayness, like that doesn't stand anymore. And and we can all articulate that clearly. And I think that's supported by what happened today, right? Yeah, I think you will look for what Ginsburg called in the in the VMI case an exceedingly persuasive justification. Like that's well, another so, way, you know, you so, look for so, something. Yeah, go ahead. So I, th- I think if the three of us were circuit judges, I think that would be true. Um, my fear is that if I am a more hostile, um, uh, I don't mean like affirmatively hostile, but if, if I'm a if I'm a circuit judge who is more um, hostile to the bottom line of today's opinion, um, I do not have that much trouble finding plenty of excuses to not apply this outside the context of marriage. True. And and so the question, I think, is once again, the question we ask after each of the court's major gay rights rulings, which is, you know, do they now have to take up the next the next question? And the next question is going to be, for example, employment discrimination um, or housing or right. jurors, as in the Abbott Labs case in the Ninth Circuit. And so, you know, I think Everyone is who's celebrating this decision should not should not stop celebrating. Um, but as a matter of you know pedagogy and constitutional principle, it's hard. I mean, even my little sister, um, who's the one person in our family who's not a lawyer and who loves the fact that she's not a lawyer, um, <laughs> texted me today to say, "So I read the opinions, and I and I'm embarrassed to say that I find myself you know finding the the, the dissents more persuasive." Um, and I think, you know, that's not going to be an uncommon reaction. And the question is, how could we have gotten, you know, a more convincing, a sounder, a more um, doctrinally defensible ru- ru- ruling? And the answer may be um, easy. We would have gotten a four justice opinion by Justice Kagan and then a narrower concurrence from Kennedy. Yeah, let me. I want to push this back to something that Joe mentioned before the before before we came on the air. Um, uh, but to kind of. Um, uh, set that up. I mean, if you look at all these dissents, right, I think the first part of Robert's dissent going to the part where he talks about uh, um, um, the Lochner era, right, which basically asks the question, what is your principle for judicial supremacy here, right? You have none. This is a problem. This takes us back to the battle. That's all. I think it's a good question to ask. It's something that, that every judge has to ask him or herself before exercising this unbelievable power uh, that they that they can exercise. So the second part of his dissent becomes far less excellent, in my view, uh, talking about you – know, there's this line in there about how um, – um, you know. Um, gays and lesbians, he uses the word they to refer to the movement, right? We'll, how, how does he phrase it? That they won't, um, um, that the victory won't be, uh, now I'm forgetting. It's that what they lost is the opportunity to persuade people. Yeah, this they is lost the thing they'll it, grieve that they lost forever. Yeah, they lost forever that chance and now people... Of, went, of full acceptance. Of full acceptance. Yeah, they lost the chance for full acceptance. Yeah. And I thought it was just crazy and nuts. And, and then Scalia's opinion to me is off the rails. It's like a like a 2000s or late 90s era blog post where, you know, you know like a, that 
a phenomenon of what was it fisking that Andrew Sullivan used to do where you, where you basically have a blog post you disagree with and you break it out into paragraphs and then you put your responses but can, like, can, but can yeah. I, say, I mean about Scalia so yeah. I mean I think you know footnote 22 will go down in the in the Scalia canon yes um, where you know where it talks about the majority having its head in the bag but but N- no he just, talks about putting himself in a bag like if he but, had to sign it he'd wear a bag but but <laughs> but lest we let Scalia off the hook for just being a shrill crazy old man um you know, I think his decision, his conscious use of the word pooch, um, yeah. I can't speak oh, German. Very but, offensive. Know, yeah. Um, I, I found it very offensive. And, 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 you know, I don't know that everyone understands the connotation of that term and the fact that that was basically the, the fire, the, 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 the spark that it started in the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. Um, but, you know, I, I, surely we expected um, a very irascible and, if not irrational, Scalia descent. But um, it, it's impressive that he keeps finding ways to one up himself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I, I posted this on Facebook too. I, I, I don't, you know, everything we hear about the court is that they're all chummy, you know, in chambers. And and after the brief unpleasantness after Bush versus Gore, they found a way to live together, and they're all friends, et cetera. And they have these great conversations. Uh, um, in uh, in their in their meetings and deciding how to decide cases, but I, you know, these cases, uh, both in in King versus Burwell and here in Obergefell, the dissents in these cases go out of their way not just to disagree, which is fine, but to talk about what they perceive to be the unspoken motivations of the authors of the other opinions. Yeah, bad right. motives. Yeah, bad well, and, motives. And, and, and can I point something out? So yeah. um, I, I actually wonder, uh, especially this is I, th- I think a stronger problem. For King versus Burwell than it is for the marriage case because I think Kennedy is used to this from Scalia. I think Kennedy probably just sort of laughs it off as the cost of doing business, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, Roberts, um, I don't think the Chief Justice was used to. I mean, the last two pages of Scalia's dissent mm-hmm. in the marriage case um, is a series of direct shots at Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and you know, I may be reading too much into this, but I think it's rather curious. That although Scalia and Thomas both joined the chiefs, I think we can fairly call it principal dissent yeah. um, in the marriage case today. Roberts didn't join theirs. No, yeah. I mean, how could I, how could you join Scalia's opinion? It was so individual, you know. I mean, <laughs> all this talk about like he, he uses this phrase "tall building lawyers" to talk right. about like big yep. city lawyers and the ABA yep. types. He yep. he uses the he talks. You know, this is the thing that's already trending uh, trending on Twitter about like ask the nearest hippie about yep. what marriage is about and whether it really does this thing that Kennedy but, says but, it's going to do. But, and, but forget, but forget Scalia. Roberts doesn't even join Thomas's or Alito's dissents. Yeah, um, and so you know, I I, I don't think yeah. you know clearly Justice Kennedy's ego, fragile though it may be is not influenced by the mockery he receives from Justice Scalia. Um, I'm not as sure that we have enough data on whether the chief is the same um, and and what, if anything, the, the last couple of days are going to do for the long-term relationship between the two of them, even though they're on the same side of the marriage case. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know how you would, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, again, let's go back to the three of us on a circuit court together, 
Boy, wouldn't that be great? That, be, that would be awesome. Be awesome. <laughs> um, so great. <laughs> it would be awesome. Uh, and, and look, you know, I, we're even worse off the air than we are on the air, Joe and me, in terms of picking on each other, right? So uh, <laughs> I think we'd be used to taking, you know, especially in cases, you know, it's like anything else. The lower the stakes, probably the nastier we would be to each other in opinions. And, and, and Steve, you'd, you'd run right along with us there, I think. But I, I, I believe it. But I think if we – I can't imagine writing some of these things about a colleague, you know, especially the the, the – the uh, critiques of, you know, we, you know, Joe, I think you said the you, you thought Kennedy's opinion was kind of gassy in a it lot is. of places, right? Yeah. It's a, it, like fine. But do you put that kind of critique right in your opinion and say it's nothing but that? I mean, there's right. Of course not. I, I said I was going to but... push back to what you said earlier. So maybe you just want to take it from here about this. But uh, um, one thing you said is, hey, uh, you know, you said this is this opinion is not for us. And if you think of this in a kind of Brown v. Board context or even like a Roe context, especially Brown v. Board where there, you know, people have written forever since then about what that opinion should have said, right, mm-hmm. to be more theoretically sound, right? And it has to be right, but here's a better way of doing it. Yeah. Um, was this the right way to do this opinion? Like maybe, you know, the 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 ration, the the holding is not for this trip only. It's not like a Bush v. Gore type opinion at all. You know, it's it's a sensible, right. it can be, you know, just see Posner's opinion and others, it can be justified, see any number of circuit courts. Maybe Kennedy felt it was important to write it in this way because of the nature of the, you know, fundamental protection of the rights. And it's less about, you know, extending Caroline products to explaining why, et cetera, we're not worried about, uh, uh, you know, a takeover of the U.S. government by the Supreme Court. You know, that's not what this is about. We have other, plenty of other opinions when we can talk about our theories with respect to uh, judicial review. But this one is about the dignity. This is about dignity, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to write an opinion about dignity and how dignity is uh, embedded in our constitutional language. And so it's an opinion about like the language of the Constitution rather than its analytical details. Is that? But uh, but if you're, I mean, if your if your claim is that, I mean, if your claim is that Kennedy was trying to write a Brown. Um, right. And Brown is famously short, right? It's like 11 <laughs> it pages. It is. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's devoid of almost any legal analysis. Right. Um, this is, this is a terrible effort, <laughs> right? I mean, it's 28 pages full of doctrine, um, with, you know, and lots of rhetoric. I mean, I, I, I hate to, I hate to be cynical about this, but this just strikes me as a typical Kennedy opinion. Um, you know, I mean, if, if the three of us, I mean, if the three of us were circumstances, if the three of us were pretending to be Kennedy clerks and we had sat down last week, and written out what we thought the Kennedy opinion, um, reversing the Sixth Circuit and striking down marriage bans would have looked like. I gotta say, guys, I think we would have gotten it pretty close. I know we would have because we talked about it um, the other night, Joe and I did. Right? I yeah. mean, this is um, and it's and it's unfortunate exactly that, what we would have um, thought. It it, it is it, it's. Uh, I think it is like Brown in uh, the clear. I think it's clear that he was trying to write not principally for lawyers who have doctrinal concerns. He was trying to write for a different audience. Now, we can we can quarrel with whether or not we think that was effectively accomplished. Like, hey, wait a minute, uh, Tony, do you really need to have these citations in here? Do you really need to have this? Like, I bet I could knock three more pages out of this if you let me edit and, and just kind of pare it down a bit. Um, but I don't think there's any doubt that's who he, who he was writing for. The the, the and so a a, sep- a totally separate problem is um, that even when he's trying to do this, he's just not particularly good at it. I, you know, the contrast in my mind is um, 
Justice Kagan's opinion in Town of Greece against Galloway, the the, mm-hmm. the case mm-hmm. about opening with the prayer mm-hmm. at the town council meeting. Her dissent in that case. Um, her dissent. She is a brilliant writer, and and when she, and she can write both to the lawyer who's concerned very much with lawyer craft and to the general reader at the same time, and it is and she does a brilliant job at it. Um, her opinion in Kimball against uh, Marvel the other day. This is the the case about patent licensing, and and it was uh, this an invention about like a web shooting toy, yeah. and it's full of these little quips based on Spider Man, and it was all very droll. And she's just a, an amazing writer. So, and so is the chief. I mean, and and look, I, I mean, agree. You know, the major. I mean, the chief's majority opinion yesterday in King versus Burwell. If I'm a layperson, you know, and I pick up that opinion, not only do I understand his statutory analysis. But I understand the backdrop and the story he tells of the, yeah. you know, the statewide, the state by state efforts to, you know, sort of work out how you get guaranteed issue and community rating provisions to actually be functional in the healthcare market. So the real, the real hubris, um, in in in, you know, I'll I'll agree with uh, Scalia that the majority opinion represents an act of hubris, but it's not the one he thinks it is. Right. Um. It, it's Kennedy insisting on writing it himself. That's right. What he should have done, uh, given that he had control of the opinion, is he should have assigned it to someone who can actually write worth a damn. Oh. Uh, which isn't him, right? He, it, he should have assigned I've, it to hmm. Kagan or Ginsburg. But, how, does, but, but how, does, how do any of those justices, with the possible exception of Breyer, and maybe we'll come back to Breyer, but how do any of those justices write a Kennedy-esque opinion that he's comfortable joining? No, that's the whole point. He would have to, he would have to understand that it's more important that it be done well in a way that someone else does things well. Why not? Instead of done, doing it yeah. well in the way he does it well. You know, given the momentousness of this uh, of this decision and its emotional importance yes. uh, uh, across the country, why not, in this case, a procurium uh, that, that that basically just tracks this, this simple idea, right, that uh, this is a regulation which imposes a dignitary harm on a class of people, right? On an identifiable class of people who have been the subject of discrimination and intolerance for, uh, well, going back, let's say. Right. And uh, to un- to, in order to approve of this, right, uh, these states need a justification. Justifications used to abound. None of these states are willing to use those now. And the justifications that are there plainly don't hold up. Right? And these are the ones about procreation, et cetera, et cetera. Right. From states which allow gays and lesbians to divorce, uh, uh, gays and lesbians to adopt. They have uh, divorce laws. They allow people to marry despite their age. All these things, like you can have little explanations about each one, but in total, it's clear that the state's laws aren't at all about the purpose uh, that the states are advancing in the the litigation. And you just say, the, the time has come. Right, the right, time like, a, has like come. A, a read versus read. We don't have to tell you the standard; it's just so obvious. Exactly, and and you know, and just because maybe now is not the time and place to announce a full theory of judicial review. And I don't. I'm actually, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about this out loud about whether but why procurium. I don't. I, there's been some stuff recently. People talking about this on on some various blogs. I actually am not a fan of the procurium opinion. I don't what? think you should be avoiding responsibility. A, a person can. A person can write if if you want to make it like Planned Parenthood against Casey, where all of the judges sign it, or the three judges who signed that opinion, whatever. But but you know wh- whoever signs it, uh, I, you know I'm thinking of just, a, like just a, write I'm it thinking well. of like a four or five page state, you know, almost just a, a simple statement of yeah. our basic no, reason without 
too much legal adornment. But, but it might have been sign, called uh, for in this case if you had that view that you that, have. But right? that's analytically distinct from can it be signed by an individual justice? An individual justice could could write that just fine. And, and let me also point out that, sure. that that for Anthony Kennedy, 28 pages is four or five pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of my favorite opinions of his, I mean, and I don't always agree with him, but the his concurrence in, in the Lucas case, the takings case, yeah. uh, I thought was was well done. And He's written two really important patent cases in the last few in the last big period since 94. Um, one called Festo, one called KSR, which are which are path breaking and and done fantastic. They're elegant. They're they're uh, compelling in their logic, they're, in their explanation. They're uh, I think they do amazing, real lawyerly craft type stuff. Fantastic but, but, opinions. But but I mean, so take take an opinion of his that I know backwards and forwards, right? Bumedian, um, which is right the major you know jurisdiction. Uh, ruling with regard to Guantanamo. Yeah. Um, Boumediene suffers from all of the flaws that we're talking about in Kennedy's jurisprudence, insofar as it is excessively long. It's like 70 some odd pages. Um, he spends an awful lot of it talking about um, deep structural principles that he then does not apply. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, this massive holding that turns on an awful lot of highfalutin rhetoric ends up actually being about a three factor balancing test. That is so vague that courts in subsequent cases can do whatever the heck they want with it, um, yeah. right? So you know, I, I think I mean I think Kennedy can be very good when he's being a technician and when he's being a sort of a you know a technocrat. Um, when Kennedy is espousing constitutional theory, um, he rambles and he rambles not just in a, not just in in volume, but he rambles in in in. in sort of analytical coherence. And I think that's what we saw today. And I think it's he's got the instincts of a pragmatic judge, right? A, like a, a judge who understands that his or her role is to judge things, right? And judgment is called for and there's nothing wrong with that. And you don't have to be afraid of that. And right. uh, in right. that way, he's like a pragmatic judge like Posner, but he can't put it in the same terms, right? right. He, ru- he rules like O'Connor and he writes like Brennan. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but that's a but that's a problem. I mean, yeah, right? I mean that, that those two things are 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 very hard to disaggregate. Yeah, and and, and so my you know I, I'm I, I'm not I'm not trying to I, I think this is a wonderful development. You know I think being at the Supreme Court today was is something I'll remember for the rest of my life. But man, you know we're going to be back here next year talking about the next battleground in you know the gay rights movement, and it's not going to be marriage; it's going to be something else. And, well, well, that's fine. I mean, at that level, I think that's fine. Lower court judges will will work out uh, and they'll take a variety of approaches as happened in this domain, right? I mean, one thing that was one thing that seems clear is that Windsor sent a pretty strong signal because only one court of appeals disagreed uh, that this was the path that had been laid down. So, but uh, although in addition, and, and a good chunk of them cited Scalia's dissent for that. Proposition. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but but they you know, they th- this judgment got reached m- many times with a variety of different explanations uh, that can happen again with some other issues, whether it's excluding gay people on your peremptory challenges. Is that a Batson violation or whatever it may be? Um, you know, I think actually the 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 more likely issue to arise super quickly is um, there are going to be some people who get fired from their job for getting gay married, uh, and they're going to be in states that don't have uh, statutes that protect against that kind of discrimination. And so we're going to have to find out some of the some of the consequences f- for you know employment law. Um, uh, and and some people are going to creatively try to use Title Seven as sex discrimination, yada yada yada. We'll we'll find out. There'll be different approaches. People will reach different judgments. It's all fine. It'll work out. 
Do you, do you think that um, so one one of the things that bothered me about the the case was uh, I, I think it was totally appropriate to ask you know why do we why do we exercise scrutiny here and and if we knew that why we might be able to answer some of the questions that they're going to come down the road right sure and so a lot of the a lot of the, the the dissenting language could be boiled down to um, this is basically a tyrannical imposition of judicial power in order to enact raw preferences, and uh, it's not in the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera, exactly what you would think, right? And, of course, there are good answers to that, I think. But these arguments were, were made, I think, unselfconsciously, citations to Lochner, the famous citation for this, and even, even Dred Scott, too, right? And uh, But unselfconsciously made without reference to any theory that they have of when it's appropriate. And believe me, these, you know, these guys writing these dissents, they scrutinize legislation all the time for, you know, uh, Citizens United, like I said, the regulatory takings clause, uh, uh, Dolan and Nolan, the exactions cases, all of these are doctrines which provide gateways to judicial review of policy on policy type grounds, right? Including today in the other case that got decided. Yeah. Did this bother? I mean, well, I don't know. Steve, did you pick up on this and do you i mean is what's the if you're citing lochner as a reason not to reach the result here what's the theory for i don't know citizens united or or you know all these other cases yeah so this is so so again i mean i think this is where you know there's an obvious response to the chief's dissent right i mean if you know so, so this let me go back to my little sister again so my little sister reads the chief's dissent and says wow you know dred scott we don't want another dred scott um, <laughs> and, and, and my reaction is, of course, we don't want another Dred Scott. But, you know, there are plenty of constitutional rulings by the Supreme Court that aren't Dred Scott. And so the question is, how does the chief in one breath say, you know, it's terrible for us to be um, anything other than the, you know, sort of umpires calling the democracies balls and strikes? And then another breath, he's, you know, look at the beyond Citizens United. I mean, look at how active the court has been in the First Amendment context in general in the last five, six, seven years. Or commerce Um, or commerce in Obamacare one. Right. Exactly right. So, you know, clearly the chief does not mind um, putting taking off the umpire's mask when it suits him. Um, The problem is, is that because the majority does not offer any kind of Carolian products like explanation for when it's okay to Lochner and when it's not okay to Lochner. The chief can sit back and say, Lochner bad, um, democratic process good. And so, you know, I think once again, I mean, you know, it's not Kennedy's style almost ever to respond to dissents, but in this case, you know, his argument uh, and his reasoning doesn't just not respond to the dissent, but it actually almost empowers the dissent. Oh, yeah. By, yeah. You know, by failing to to sort of to give any kind of footnote for justification for, you know, stepping into. I mean, there's this fascinating part toward the end of his opinion where he talks about, you know, why, why now, why we jump ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, but none of that was about protecting a minority group from the tyranny of the majority. Right. If he and, I, if he just like served up just just for me, just for me, Anthony, you know, just just put a footnote where you cite Caroline products, you right? know, maybe just okay. that uh, uh, maybe Even maybe that CF, would be enough. A, a courtesy <laughs> CF at, right. at, the, at, at the very end, you know, courtesy right. CF Caroline products footnote four. Don't even quote it. Yeah. And we'll we'll, you know, establish what we what we mean and don't yeah. mean by that, you know, later on. You know, dear listeners, we can't help it. Uh, so if you're trying to formulate a joke about how lawyers are, you know, people who you can pretty much count on not to take yes for an answer, <laughs> um, it, we can't help it. This is what we do. This is who we are, right? So the craft points matter. 
It's not just the result. You you want it you want it to be well explained. Well, it matters for very it matters for reasons that that the dissents were correct to focus on Agreed. for matters of democracy because if the court doesn't enforce its own separation of powers rules on itself, no one else will. Right. That's right. the problem. And and and, and so that's why in con- that's why I think there's a dramatic distinction between healthcare yesterday and marriage today because, you know, it's one thing for the court to, to blow up over how they interpret statutes, because um, at the end of the day, Congress can do whatever the heck it wants. But when it comes to constitutional jurisprudence, you know, I, I hate to sound like too much of a lawyer, but the why really does matter. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't matter today and it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter tomorrow. And it's not going to matter for any gay couple that now wants to get married in a state that previously didn't let them. But in every other way, it matters. And I, I think one of the reasons the why matters is because it, it's it's functionally important to make the court say why. Like if, mm-hmm. if and to expose it's yourself why, it's to why ridicule. We have opinions. I mean, exactly. It's why, right, right. it's why we have opinions and not just judgments. It's why John Marshall, way back when, abandoned the practice of seriatim, you know, short statements by the justices in favor of an opinion of the court, like they did in England and still still do in England. Yeah, right. Yeah. Basically. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What did you think of uh, King versus Burwell yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the weirdest thing about King versus Burwell, right? Which is that folks of my, you know, sort of political ilk read that opinion and basically say, duh. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I never understood why this case was that hard. Um, oh, darn it. I see. I was hoping, you know, our show is called Oral Argument. And yeah. we never have them. We, well, we, I don't say that we never have them. We rarely have yeah, them. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't air enough of the ones that we have. The thing we argue so most about take, is how yeah, often go, go we ahead. argue. Can I take two efforts to provoke you guys? Please do, yes. All right. So, so the two things I find somewhat interesting about King versus Burwell, um, the first is how the chief um, justifies dodging Chevron. Yeah. Um, which I know is in the weeds and we should unpack it a bit, but it's actually, I think, a really big deal because it's basically the, he's basically getting his moment in the sun to vindicate a dissent he wrote a couple of years ago. In um, City of Arlington, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the second is, you know, I, I, I actually think it's, you know, it's, King versus Burwell is a really useful teaching case because it really does show how we dis- differentiate between text and context. And, you know, if anything, I mean, maybe it really is that Scalia is such a literal textualist that he just can't deal with, you know, that 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 he actually deeply believes this to his core. But if so, then I think that exposes why literal textualism is um, so problematic. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, it doesn't not just because literal textualism leads you to ridiculous conclusions, but because literal textualism is indeterminate. In, in the following sense, like, like I'm willing to grant that maybe in his heart of hearts, he believes that the best literal interpretation of that statute, as he wrote, you know, most of what he wrote was kind of conclusory, right? You know, obviously it means this, obviously it means that. And uh, a lot of kind of insult and innuendo thrown on top of it. But uh, maybe in his heart of hearts, he thinks exchange established by the state cannot be, as Breyer called it in the argument, denotative. It can't denote a, a, a basically a 1311 exchange, right? Uh, it has to mean physically established by the state Uh, maybe he really believes that in his heart i don't you know i don't think that's the best literal interpretation of of those words i I really don't and i don't think that's because i don't read english uh i i think it's because you know even a 
four, how many how many words is that five we're talking it's about established. this established by the state or is such exchange because well, to me it's the such exchange yeah, that is the killer argument right but the problem is, I mean, but hold on a second, but scalia would say if scalia were here he would say the statute refers to state exchanges created by the state or the federal government elsewhere right so you know state is state does mean something state does not just mean government well, it, it does, but uh, and I think you know in, in 1311 it means that it, it, the tax section that um, provides for premium assistance it uses that phrase, but then in is it 1321 or 41? I'm getting my numbers mixed up. But too many opinions in the last I think couple 21. of days. Yeah, is the federal one right? That's the yeah. one which says you know if the state doesn't do it, then the federal government so, will establish so, such so, exchange. I so so let, let's take a less politically fraught case. Yeah. Um, because so there's an issue that never got to the Supreme Court, that I, and I would love to know what Scalia thinks about it. And you guys may remember this. This is a CivPro problem. Um, so when Congress passed the Class Action Fairness Act, uh, yes, right, they 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 screwed up one of the one of the 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 timeline the time limits for filing an appeal. Um, the statute the statute says literally something like any appeal of this kind of like class certification denial or something must be taken, and the statute says no less than seven days after blah, 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 right after the district court denies certification. Um, of course, the statute means no more than seven days. Why would you have a waiting, a cooling off period and no, you know, filing deadline? Right. Um, and, but, I think, and it meant that you, since it said not less than seven, it meant that if you filed it five years later, it would still be timely. Exactly. And if you filed it five days <laughs> after the decision, it would be untimely. Right. Um, and now, happily, so, the one day everyone can agree is met on either version of that statute is the seventh day. Right. And so you had all these lawyers who filed on the seventh day just to be safe. But, this <laughs> right. pro- but, if, I, but if I recall, this provoked five or six circuit court decisions. We call this the Genesis provision. <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the seventh day they filed. Right. That's right. But yeah, um, a bunch of circuit courts um, grappled with the fact that this is, it's, uh, the legislative history makes clear uh, precisely what Steve says, which is what they meant is not more than seven days. Um, the literal language couldn't be more clear and direct. Right, not less than seven days. How is that not clear to someone? Right. Well, and, I, yet, and yet all the circuit courts said, um, if you'll forgive the the line, that in fact less is more. Right. That <laughs> that 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 reading the statute the way Congress clearly meant, even though the plain text is clearly to the contrary, we all interpret the word less in the statute to mean more. I recall it differently. I, I recall that there were some judges who said that, but I think there were other judges. Now it may be that they were always dissenters. Yes. But my recollection is there were plenty of judges who said, look, I, you know, I, I don't care that it's strange. Uh, you might even think it's absurd, but it's it's too clear not to do what it says. So in so a I case think, where I, they I, file... I, I think it, those were dissents. Okay. That, yeah, that may be, but, but Cause, it's... Because the issue never got to the Supreme Court, which right. I'm sure it would have had there been a division. Right, right. But, but Good point. I, I raise this just to say, right, that in a case devoid of the political baggage of Obamacare and... You know, I think it's a, I, the only person on the court who I think yesterday was um, was impervious to that baggage was the chief justice. And even he probably wasn't um, right. But, you know, in a case without the political baggage, I actually don't think even textualists would have real trouble um, with reading words in the statute to mean the opposite of what they mean. If, it, if there's just no question that Congress meant so. I mean, a good example of this is the you know, there's the canon of statutory interpretation where courts are allowed to correct Scrivener's errors. Yeah, I was about to raise that, because the, the CivPro yeah. example that you raised sounds like what Scalia would call Scrivener's error, and he's I said before, that's fine, right? But, right, uh, right. Yeah. And so, so in his dissent yesterday, if I remember, Scalia actually s- explains why, in his view, Scrivener's errors are different. Um, 
and I, I have to say, I, I thought that was a very important moment, and I wasn't sold. Um, <laughs> right. Here are two. Here are two lines. I mean, let me just give you two lines that I took out from the opinion as I was kind of going through it. And from just which? this is from uh, um, Scalia's dissent in in uh, okay. Obamacare too. Yeah, and you, you it, mean Scotus Care? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I and I'm I'm just trying to figure out like if I'm suppose I'm a space alien, I've got no baggage at all, and all I'm trying to figure out is what Scalia's method is. Right. What What is he doing when he gets this legal data from? Congress and what data is he looking at? And so he's got this one line which says it's common sense that any speaker who says exchange some of the time, referring to the parts of the statute where it just says exchange, but exchange established by the state the rest of the time probably means something by the contrast. Okay, so that's that's one line. Another line is it's probably piling on to add that the Congress that wrote the Affordable Care Act knew how to equate two different types of exchanges when it wanted to do so. Is referring to territorial exchanges, et cetera, right? right? Now, these are canons, and they're canons that he's uh, – these, these are the translations of certain canons that he and Garner, I think, call for in, in the book that was uh, the subject of much controversy with Posner. But are these really textual canons? I mean, in other words, there's they're textual because you're looking at the text itself, but your reasons for concluding meaning from the text is based on what you think people who use that kind of text probably mean. And he's applying that in a case where we all know what they meant, right? Yeah. There's no question about what they meant. That's what's so strange about it. That's I, I mean, at a certain is, is, level. It, is it possible that Scalia would argue with a little help from Akhil Amar that they're intratextualist canons? And that and that what he's doing is not putting the, that, that provision in context, but rather he's lining up different provisions next to each other. So he's still looking at the text. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's, but the majority does that too, and and I think to much more persuasive effect. Oh, well, I, look, I well, agree. But, I mean, I, but 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 the majority. I mean, I think what the majority says, and I think this is. I mean, at the end of the day, if there's one obvious principle that divides the majority in the dissent, what the majority says is, and they quote uh, uh, an earlier case for this, that the court's job is not to interpret a provision, is to interpret a statute. Right. And yeah. and I think you know that that seems obvious to us in retrospect, but I think it's worth you know. The, it, there's, I mean, there's a canon called the whole act canon, um, right? That 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 statute should be read on the assumption that they were meant to be, co- you know, cohesive, internally cohesive and consistent. Right. Um, and it may be hard to apply that to a statute with such a sordid legislative history and procedural history as the ACA. But the notion that we can't just take words in one provision and read them out of context, you know, is I think something that has widespread support among all of the justices except Scalia. Um, and even Scalia in other cases. Well, in the, you know, in the in relation to statutes, of course, the court is if there's no question about their constitutionality, the court is in an, is in an inferior position, right? The court, yeah, of the course. court's job is to as is faithful to, agents subordinate yeah, exactly make the statute work, and, and, and that's and, why I do not understand the conservative reaction to the decision yesterday. You know, the I mean, if anything, right, there was a more heated conservative reaction yesterday than there has been so far today. Um, maybe that's just a reflection of how this is really about politics and not law. Um, and, and if so, fine. But, you know, the, the thing that strikes me about yesterday is first, it's a statutory interpretation case. I mean, you know, the, the court does this all the time and there are remedies when they get it wrong. Um, but second, especially in the conservative reaction, so much of the ire, I mean, all of the ire is directed at the chief. Um, and I'm not, I'm not very good at math, but I think there were two conservative justices <laughs> In the majority yesterday. Well, and they think Kennedy's long gone, so I don't think they care about it. Even on him. this? Mm, 
Yeah, maybe not. Maybe because of the commerce clause. Yeah, I mean, right. Rationality I mean, I mean, for, not, I mean listen, if I it, on marriage, right? If I'm a conservative, you know, my wife would divorce me. But um, the <laughs> I, I I totally understand that Kennedy is is every is everything in the marriage case, right? But if I'm a conservative looking at healthcare, I think you know I think Kennedy's in the bag, and I and it's Roberts who I need. And you know, to suggest that the decision yesterday is all Roberts's fault is, I think, to you know. Um, cut out at least half of the other responsibility. I mean, the, the conservatives are counting on Kennedy, the libertarian. So they're counting on him for an affirmative action for, uh, you know, anti-Obamacare. Um, and you realize that you're going to lose him on some social issues. I mean, I think that's how a lot of people think about him. But uh, I, Of course, but is healthcare a social issue that Kennedy cares about? This is the thing, you know, we talked about this on our show when we first talked about this. I don't... I can't. It's hard for you to imagine any like, if you think about elite conservative lawyer types. Uh, um, I just it's hard for me to imagine they really care that much about Obamacare. You know, I, other, you, other than other than for its political value, other than for its political, and I think that's why you know the Chief Justice's opinion in Obamacare one was so masterful from a conservative point of view, winning two incredible, incredible conservative victories, you know, on the Commerce Clause and especially right. Spending Clause. Right. And one, what, one what of which was, was the, seven to two? What was the price you paid for it? You upheld a law which was basically designed by the Heritage Foundation. I mean, well, so this, <laughs> right. So, so, so this goes. So this goes back to what I think is the other interesting piece about the Roberts opinion from yesterday, which is Chevron, um, and and it strikes me that you know there's, the, you know the 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 sort of the the lefty conspiracy theorists um, have been worried for a while about two trends in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, um, both of which I think can be attributed to and and, and indeed have their roots in um, concerted pushes by the Federal Society. Um, one is the destruction of Chevron, um, and the other is the glorification of Lochner. Um, and what's interesting is I think the latter fell very hard today. <laughs> it um, sure did, in the, yeah. In the, in, the, in the four conservative dissents, um, none of which had a nice thing to say about Lochner um, or you know substantive due process at all. But the Chevron point could kind of actually a, a be tough week. Bigger. Tough week for Bernstein, isn't it? It, you know, <laughs> what if you if you read his post on Volek, uh, um, he seems very um, distraught. Um, but 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 I have to say, I mean, the Chevron point is, I think, potentially the much more forward-looking, legally significant thing about yesterday's decision, um, which is, you know, how often now is the court going to say, um, yes, this provision is ambiguous, but we're not going to get to Chevron because there are other reasons why we think. Read yeah. as a whole, the statute is clear. Okay, so no, I want, let, me, let me racket this. I was just going to explain what, again, uh, do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? I don't want to, I, I want to, before you do whatever you're going to do, I oh, want to point out that for people who think this issue is interesting, which yeah. Christian's about to elaborate on, um, there's a great <laughs> post on Prof's blog from yesterday by Adam Zimmerman about the mm-hmm. Chevron issue from King against Burwell. And I've it's not read got it. the thing, what? I've not read it. Yeah, okay. And the thing that's super great about it is that it's got a comment on it. Uh, from listener Asher. Oh, really? Who we had the yes. great pleasure of talking about some comments he sent to us about some issues in prior episodes. Yes. So listener Asher commented on Adam's uh, Adam Zimmerman's post on Profs. He's the one so, who emailed us about Chevron in this case. Yes. Yeah. So I would commend both that post and Asher's comment um, to our listeners to go read. Well, Asher's an oral and benefit argument listener. From and therefore, yeah, therefore, yeah. I think immediately, you know, 
and in I knew high it esteem. had to be our Asher because it was so it was so fantastic, it was so excellent. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I sent him a note, and he said, "Yes." I was just, yes, was just gonna, you know, because we're throwing these words out there. We've talked about it before, but in a nutshell, when the court's interpreting a statute, uh, and that statute directs an agency to do something. Um, uh, the question will arise when the agency interprets the statute in order to do that thing. Should the, should the agency's interpretation affect the court's interpretation? And, and there are various doctrines that say, yes, you should defer in this way or the other or not. And the major one, and the only one we'll talk about here is, is the Chevron doctrine from this case, Chevron, where the court says if the statute is ambiguous and the agency has made an interpretation that has the force of law, but we'll put that to one side, uh, then um, you should defer to that agency interpretation of that ambiguous statute. As and, long as it's reasonable. And what that means is that you follow it if it's reasonable yeah, right. or permissible. They use both words in, in, in Chevron. So the, so the question in this case, like you, you might say, as I do, that the statute actually is not ambiguous and <laughs> it read as a whole. I don't think it is either. And, but. and, and that the uh, – and that – Subsidies are available on exchanges established by the secretary, um, but if you, but at the very worst uh, for the administration, it's ambiguous, right? Uh, and if it's ambiguous, then you have to figure out whether the IRS rule was a reasonable one, which means you could agree to disagree, but you can't say that the person who uh, w- was uh, unreasonable to come up with that interpretation. And Justice Roberts, in the opinion yesterday, says, you know what, uh, Chevron shouldn't apply because it's inconceivable to think that Congress intended to give to the IRS. The, uh, the question, the power to decide the question whether federal exchanges get subsidies, especially in light of the fact that without subsidies, they'll completely fall apart. So that's kind of a lot of power. And there's nothing in the statute to indicate an intention to give the agencies that power. Um, so I, that to me, you know, so the question is, is Chevron a, a, a doctrine about congressional intent? Right. Is it one about um, uh, a need the, uh, a, a case from a few years ago now? Um, where the court is trying to uh, explain why Chevron is a sensible approach, um, roots it in the notion that Congress can delegate to an agency this elaboration task. So ultimately, it is about what Congress decided to do. Like, did it give the agency this job? So asking, in yesterday's opinion, did Congress really mean to give this job to the IRS is, in a sense, exactly the right question. And so here, Steve, this is for me. Yeah, exactly. And for me, uh, if <laughs> this question is so huge because it affects the entire future of federal exchanges, um, I wonder whether the answer that the chief justice gave here that no, this is uh, was not given to Congress to decide Actually, we'll have that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, agency. Whether that will actually have much influence on Chevron, Chevron's future. Well, so, so, so I think, I mean, I think that's the right question. And, you know, there are two things I want to say about that. The first is either way, note how the opinion means that President Scott Walker can't on his second day of office take away the tax subsidies. Yeah, right. Um, Right. That, that ironically, by going that route, the chief actually made it harder to dismantle Obamacare. but but second, I mean, I think this is the larger point. I'm with you that there's a good argument that this is like a one train only kind of Chevron analysis, at least at the end of the Chevron discussion, when the chief says, surely Congress didn't mean to give this power to the IRS of all agencies. Um, and he even italicizes, <laughs> I mean, in that point of the opinion, he even italicizes IRS for good measure. Um, he, he tried to throw some red meat in there. Uh, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> not only concern, there, but in other places. Yeah, I, I don't want to say the problem because I don't. Th- I'm not sure it's a problem. But my my concern about this is 
before he gets to that, before he gets to even if this was a Chevronable case, um, you know, the IRS is not the agency that to which Chevron should apply here. He talks about how like the scale of the statute and the centrality of the exchanges and the significance of the question all militate against applying Chevron. And, you know, my only question is, does that mean that there's now at, you know, what folks have taken to calling Chevron step zero, an opportunity for judges to cut agencies out of the loop based upon a subjective judge-made assessment of the importance of the statute and the centrality of that particular provision to the statute as a whole? Using eventually like some kind of multi-factor balancing thing. That, you, that in effect yeah. means that we're only going to apply Chevron once we basically reach the conclusion that Chevron would have led us to anyway. You know, maybe, but like, you know, if I'm, if I'm in, if I'm a clerk in the Supreme Court and the next Chevron case comes along, I don't think I'm going to have any trouble with King versus Burwell, right? Because it would just be so easy to distinguish. And so I think we'll only go there if there are five vo- votes for going there. Uh, on on the Supreme Court, I agree with you. My question is, you know, in the complex administrative cases that yeah. never get anywhere near the Supreme Court. So now you're a D.C. Circuit clerk and you've got a question about, you know, deferring to, I don't know, um, the Bonneville Power Administration um, on an energy rate setting case. Right. right. I mean, you know, that's 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 the you know, those are the, the that's where this actually could have some play in the joints and where I'm and, and where indeed I think the chief was, um, if anything, using the um, delight of the justices to his left in the result of the opinion to procure <laughs> their acquiescence in views and w- with which they disagreed when he expressed them in his dissent in Arlington versus FCC. Yeah, but I think so. I don't know. So suppose you're uh, suppose you're Breyer though, and and you see and, and you and you see the draft of this opinion, right? And and you're th- and you're thinking to yourself. Uh, well, I'll tell you what I would be thinking. And I don't know if Breyer's thinking this or not, but I would, it would be, be long winded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> strap in, Steve. We're gonna get quite a little no, uh, no. Uh, a filibuster no, here. I, no, no, Good no. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. I, I would think to myself, you know what? I actually don't think Chevron deference is appropriate in this case. Um, because of how huge it is, but you got to read the Adam Zimmerman post because that's not at all what he would be thinking. What he'd be thinking is this is a Chevron case that ends at step one. Uh, and and that, that's, I think how, uh, an administrative law lawyer who isn't out to, to fundamentally undercut Chevron, um, would, would approach it because there's no problem approaching it that way. You can resolve this thing entirely at step one and this was the this is asher's comment to that adam zimmerman uh, blog post that it, that's what makes it mysterious right because mm-hmm. you can right. say at step one congress right. has spoken so clearly to this question that right. even though we're applying chevron you never get to step two right the, the agency and, has and, no right. discretion and, in, and instead and instead the chief takes advantage of basically you know the the good the good feeling of his colleagues who are joining him to say, no, this is actually a Chevron step zero case where I'm going to bring what I guess will henceforth be known as the major questions doctrine um, <laughs> to the forefront. Yeah, I, just, I just find that implausible that that Breyer, Kagan, Ginsburg and Sotomayor um, would all, you know, would kind of be hypnotized by good feeling. You know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying they're hypnotized, but I'm saying that, you know, I mean, you I know, just they think- didn't. They didn't. They didn't write a word. And so, well, because they know they're not really bound by it. Because it's it, because it's not. Um, I mean, in a way, it's like all the statutory interpretation methodology holdings the court ever reaches. 
which is they make it up anew every time anyway. No, so, I agree. Listen, guys, I, I, I think, again, I, I think if we're talking about the next Supreme Court case, there's no daylight between what we're saying. Yeah, right. You're right. What I, I'm I'm more worried about not just I'm not worried about the justice who's trying to avoid being bound by this language. I'm worried about the lower court judge who wants to take advantage of this language. So that's what I want to ask you uh, next. And, and, and I know um, we might be running a little bit short on time, but um, <laughs> so much for talking about Guantanamo, right? Yeah, well, and I, yeah, next time, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> one, this is our, one day. this is our sneaky ploy for getting you on every few months, Steve, uh, is, is, uh, hold out but, the carrot that one day we'll talk uh, about Guantanamo. And I really want to talk about Guantanamo. Um, okay. So, but, uh, you know, let's suppose that, uh, that that your worry is correct, and I also, you know, in, in both of these cases, there's that worry about what the lower courts are going to do with this the squishiness from both of these cases. Uh, but is this? I mean, h- how long will we have to wait for the next Chevron case in the Supreme Court? Oh, not long. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right, see, right, see, right. next year. Yeah. So, so are you really worried about l- what lower courts will do with that language? O- only in one respect, right? Which is that there are areas of administrative law that never get to the Supreme Court, and and the question I have is simply about whether this major questions doctrine is going to be limited to, you know, what, what Bill Eskridge would call super statutes. Yeah. Um, or whether it instead is going to be, you know, a major question is any question that goes to the heart of the statute itself, right? Where, where the majorness of the question is not about the size of the program, but the centrality of the question to the underlying statute. Because um, it strikes me that the chief has armed, you know, lower court judges with plenty of ammunition um, to to dramatically widen Chevron Step Zero. Now, let me be clear: I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad. I'm not an administrative law person, right? I don't have strong views about the the virtues and vices of Chevron, or at least I do, but they go in very different directions. Yeah, right. So, so I'm not saying that like this is. A secretly, you know, a, the chief secretly hid some conservative victory in the. No, that not at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I, I do think it's interesting that given that he didn't have to say that because we could just have settled this on, you know, the IRS is not the right agency to receive Chevron deference here. Um, that he went out of his way to talk about that. Yeah, and that's and what. So, I, yeah, that's what I would have to see. Too. I mean, typically people take positions on these administrative questions that maybe in one case align with political views but in the very next case go against it i mean well, this, and, it's and, famous for listen, that, right? i mean but, yeah. we all we, we all have agencies we like and trust and we all have agencies we don't like and don't trust and right which agencies fall into which of those camps depends to a large degree on our politics or our station in life but you know that's that's the weird thing about administrative law but you know but let me i mean at the risk of 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 dragging us back to the big picture here now please um, do <laughs> you know I, I i really hope folks don't come away from this thinking that you know it's uh, um, that 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 we that the weeds have 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 sort of overtaken the forest. I mean, to look back, what, whatever happens on Monday, you know, on Monday we've got the EPA case, which the government's probably going to lose. Yeah. Um, we have the Arizona redistricting case, the lethal which, injection case. Yep, and the lethal injection case. I, I don't think Monday is going to be a particularly happy day for progressives. Yeah. Um, but even if all three of those cases go as badly as they possibly could, this has been a, a remarkably for lack of a better word, progressive term, um, and a remarkably, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, not sort of in the long historical sweep, but in like the last five years. Yeah. Um, a gay I marriage, mean, yes. But let me, here's my, you know, part of what makes something look progressive is, and I always say this, like, the, the, you know, the measure of any society is, I think, in large part, the set of questions it decides to spend its time answering. <laughs> 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we have spent so much energy on King versus Burwell, like every time I hear, right, is not a good sign. Yeah, every time I hear really smart people writing and blogging about and everything else, and, and and you know, even even Jonathan Adler, who I think is really smart, and I see him on Twitter, and and like, and I know that he believes in this, right? But I do think this is an issue that is is interesting. It would be interesting to talk about academically, but has been a huge waste of time. Uh, um, uh, for, for the public at large. And, and in particular, like, this is a question where to be progressive or to tilt things in a progressive direction is, is just not to choose the option, which is, in my mind, somewhat like right wing crazy in a way, right? Which is, <laughs> is strike down Obamacare on these grounds, like to interpret a statute so that part of it kills the entire other part of the statute. I mean, it's just, you know, so, I mean, if, if, if the Supreme Court granted cert in a lot of cases that, uh, where if they answered in a particular way, it would move things sharply to the right. We don't, I don't know if you would claim a huge victory at the end because they didn't do that. I mean, I think the conservatives overreached here, um, by, accept, by, um, uh, by taking cert in some of these cases, and it didn't go as planned. But so, that's, so, so yeah. I, I agree with you on healthcare. I actually think in the, in this story, healthcare is at the end of this story. Yeah. Um, compared to marriage, um, compared to the housing discrimination case from yesterday, which I think was a minor miracle. Um, <laughs> that you know, I mean, the, the but only because they, we didn't lose it, right? I mean, only because it didn't. Well, go ahead. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yes. Only because we didn't lose it. But listen, I mean, these days, that's you know. When it comes to, you know, statutes Congress passed in the 1960s, um, quote, only because we didn't lose it, unquote, is actually pretty good. I mean, contrast that with Shelby County, where where we lost it. Um, So, you know, I'm not saying this is like the second Warren court. I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) surely not. Um, But and I I use the word progressive carefully to not mean liberal. um, Right. These are not liberal rulings that the Supreme Court is handing down. Um, But I do think it's worth stressing that. Um, you know, on on a on a lot of stuff that isn't getting attention on, you know, like Los Angeles versus Patel, the Fourth Amendment case from from earlier this week. Um, you know, there are a series of awfully not bad five to four, six to three decisions with either the uh, uh, the chief or Kennedy um, joining the lefties. Um, that doesn't mean we should all think that like the Supreme Court has turned a corner. I mean, we might know as early as Monday that they're going to take the Texas abortion case next term. Yeah. Um, you know, there's any number of other issues where I, I'm, you know, living in, in dread of what's going <laughs> to happen in the next year or two. But I, I think it's worth stressing that, you know, from the perspective of how bad it could have been, um, not, you know, the, the progressive universe did a hell of a lot more than dodge a bullet this term. Yeah, I think there's a, I think the, the, I I don't know how, you know, I was amazed when King, when they took cert and King and uh, especially the timing of it, not waiting waiting for the government to go on bonk. Exactly. And and it seemed like there was a will to take that before, you know, while there was still a split and, and that was concerning. Uh, So we're sort of scraping the bottom of the, of the right wing loony bin barrel. And that's part of why I didn't want to go that far, but I was going to say, I I was going to say that there, I think there's a limit to the social acceptability of a rightward tilt to the law and you can do it in cases. I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, it, as Hobby Lobby starts working, you know, it's, it's magic in the lower courts. I don't know about that. Yeah, we'll find well, out. But I think it comes back. I mean, I think you can do some things in the abstract, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, you're going to have to fix pragmatically when they when they come back. I mean, I'm thinking of Obamacare one. Like, you, yeah. you know, you just you couldn't strike. I mean, I just think Robert saw. I mean, I don't think if they had struck it on those grounds or if they had reached on. I don't think people really 
because we haven't seen too many like left wing freakouts. You know, we're used to right wing freakouts over a right. bunch of different things, whether right. it's the you know go go all the way back to the pledge of allegiance case right uh well but, I mean, would you call shelby county a left-wing freak out uh, no i um because I, I mean I, I think from the perspective I mean, I mean i think i think sort of holistically shelby county is by far the biggest blow yes um, with yeah. with citizens united actually a distant second um as as con law rulings in the last five years go. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, um, Citizens United is a, is on the progressive wing universally reviled. On the other hand, the problem of campaign finance in general seems so intractable that it's hard to, like, pin all the blame on that and, decision. And, and, and bipartisan. I mean, liberals yeah, have plenty of right. money, too. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, torpedoing the Voting Rights Act, um, that was pretty severe and significant yeah you know and you wonder how much of that was symbolic and how much is it uh, is there a sense that it would be very hard to put something back and And talk about not having a theory right uh not having a constitutional theory i mean this makes uh you know makes kennedy's opinion in 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 obergefell look like the hart and wexler (laughs) i mean it's uh wait is that a good thing (laughs) <laughs> it's saying that the 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 shelby county thing is the emperor you know wasn't just naked he was doing gainers into the pool i mean it's but it's important to remember that struck down the pre the the criteria for the pre-clearance regime right it it yeah and you might say that right. was the heart so of the voting it, it rights act the provisions that were holding it, back right. a torrent of anti voter provisions and it looks like we might be getting some movement on that but i uh, anyway i th- so maybe, maybe. That, I, I but, all, but, all I'm saying is, I, I, so, so I think you're right. I mean, Christian, I think you're right that I think, I think the, there, there, is a, there is a finite quota of, of Tea Party-led constitutional uh, uh, litigation. Um, but the next chapter is religion. Yeah. And, and I have to say that, that you know, where as much as Kennedy, I think, is, is, is and has been reliably good from my perspective on um, gay marriage and on other gay rights questions and on some other social issues, this court scares me to death <laughs> when it comes to religion. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what Roberts ends up doing in the long run. I, you know, it's it, certainly in the short term. I think they, you know, the the these it's there's a lot of potential out there um, for and, and that potential yeah. is and 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 that potential was given a voice in no one other than Kennedy today. I mean, Kennedy yeah. even says toward the end of his majority opinion in Obergefell, you know, of course there will be hard questions of, you know, we're yeah. not trying to trample on religious rights and on, you know, free exercise and all that other thing. So, and, you know, and religion's I, a tough one too, because on almost every issue, if you go down issue by issue, uh, I know P- this is the opposite of the common wisdom, but we are basically a left of center country. <laughs> issue by if you go down just you know sure. if you break it down to the issue rather just than, use polling on people's preferences right. for outcomes exactly That's but on true. abstractions things like you know random things that i hate these phrases i hate like size of government right, right. or this right. or that then we are a right of center country right and so it's the, the thing about the supreme court is that it is able through individual cases to rule on sometimes somewhat abstract issues like the commerce power right or the spending clause right and at a certain level of abstraction, people can go along with those things, either because they don't understand them at all or because they seem to be moving in the right general direction towards smaller government or, or more state control. But when you get down to the level of individual cases, 
Uh, and this is maybe is why Hobby Lobby is in maybe an irritant. It's an individual who is under the thumb of a corporation and can't get contraceptives now of a certain kind, right? Uh, then I think you start to get resistance. And that's where I think that finite quota comes in. There are only so many of those you can do before you may finally provoke a left-wing freakout about some of these things. Um, and and that, that left-wing freakout can grow. I mean, I think, you know, it, I, maybe everybody was surprised by the rapidity this week of the taking down of all the Confederate flags, Yeah. right? I mean, there's, there's an impulse there towards individual justice, which is what I would call kind of a left-of-center impulse, which counteracts that more abstract right-of-center impulse we have about size of government and abstract issues. So I, I think all of those things are true, and, and, I, and I, I, I hope, as you do, that that's actually what would happen. Um, the, the two things that give me pause are um, the, you know, or, or at least the two bellwethers, shall we say, are what the court does next term with the Texas abortion case, mm-hmm. um, which I think is the biggest abortion case that the court's going to have had since Casey. Um, and more generally, the inescapable fact that next year— um, Kennedy and Scalia both turn 80. Mm. Um, and that, you know, whoever <laughs> wins the 2016 presidential election is going to come to office with three octogenarians on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, if nothing else is clear from the last couple of days, um, the significance of the next president being able to replace both Kennedy and Scalia and maybe Ginsburg. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, any Democrat or Republican president who gets to fill all three of those seats is going to be able to move the court, I would think, rather dramatically in one direction or the other. And in the next eight years, there may be five seats. Right. Right. Good thing so, it's going to be Secretary Clinton. <laughs> well, you know, whoever it is, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't mean I don't wish ill on anyone, but I think actuarial charts are what they are. And this court is not getting any younger. Um, <laughs> True. And, you know, and, and, and if nothing else is clear from the last week. It's that there are seven pretty darn solid votes on this court on virtually yep. any question of major political significance. I just wish we could get to one of those moments where each side has something to lose and we can agree on fixed. Uh, what is it? Is it 18 year terms? 18 What's years. the right number? Yeah. 18, yeah, 18 years. Yeah. So that we can get more people doing what Souter did. God, I respect that guy. Yeah, me well, too. So, so, I mean, so I, I read an op-ed earlier this week where someone suggested that um, – once he hands down the gay marriage rule, it would be time for you know, it would be the perfect time for Kennedy to retire. Um, yeah. Ex- reaction- except Bozos like us came on and beat him up over it, so now he's got. <laughs> yeah. well, no, no, but no, then yeah. I was going to say was whoever yeah. wrote that op-ed has never met Justice Kennedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> if there is a person, if there is a person who revels in this, yeah. more than Anthony Kennedy, I don't know who it is. Interesting. Well, Steve. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else to say about these? Um, there's a lot else to say, but like, is there anything? Yeah, we could like do this for another five hours. Is there, um, is there something oh, you're burning way, to say? No one was all, oh, by the way, while no one was looking, Justice yeah. Scalia struck down the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminals Act today. Yeah, it's like I keep saying. He, without a hint of irony, he turns around and, and exercises judicial review on one of the more unusual, right? Void for vagueness under the due well, process clause. When was better, the last time and, that and, happened? And even better, um, in order to in order to um, um, basically for for the sole benefit of four time or more felons. <laughs> <laughs>
right? Because the only people who are sentenced under the statute are people who have committed at least three prior violent felonies yeah. and are now being prosecuted and sentenced for a fourth gun-related offense. Yeah, the, the, the phrase career criminal is in the title of the statute. <laughs> yeah, I saw someone on, Twitter, someone on Twitter posted that they felt a little bit bad for the armed career criminals today who weren't getting their day in the sun. Yeah, they weren't you getting know. all love. They <laughs> so, so what you're saying is right next to Jim Obergefell, there should have been, you know, uh, <laughs> right. uh, a... What we need is we needed these escaped fugitives from upstate New York. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but oh I, you know, I, I also, I mean, I think the, the the only thing to say in closing is, I mean, I think you know, as time goes on, King versus Burwell and the Texas Fair Housing case will recede um, as the sort of small statutory decisions that they are, and the gay marriage case will be huge. But you know, I think in the moment, just the fact that um, all three of those cases could have come out the other way this week and didn't. Yeah, it, you know, no matter what we think of the actual opinions, is a pretty remarkable bottom line. And well, and here's what I would say about King. You know, it, it will recede as an individual case, but the survival of Obamacare um, against these kinds of challenges. I don't know if it's the kind of thing where you know, uh, you know, it's like um, uh, in Star Wars where you try to strike it down and it makes it stronger. But uh, uh, but well, look, but I mean, Obamacare I mean, look, is a domestic right. achievement. Um, this is another right. thing that the, the next president matters. I mean, if it, if it's That's a Republican right. president, um, they'll be able to do uh, King, notwithstanding, they'll be able to do a fair bit of uh, administrative law mischief. If, if, uh, my and if they have serves- a Republican legislature, they'll be able to do it serious harm. Um, so. depending on the filibuster rules in the Senate. But I, I mean, and that's why I think the Senate races in 2016 now become even more important. But, yep. you know, if I remember right, there's a case from like 1937 called, I think, Steward Machine Company versus Davis. Um, I don't even, I don't even feel good about the title. But yeah, what is it? I know that. I know that case. Have I think that's the that? case where the court upheld Social Security. Yeah, I think that's right. I, right. But I, yeah. Anyway. We don't, we don't, we, that, you know, no, no list of great constitutional law cases has Steward Machine Company versus Davis at the top of it. Um, but we all know the importance of Social Security. Right. And so I think that, you know, to Joe's point about the sort of, and, and, and Christian to the larger point, right, about the, you know, we may forget King versus Burwell as a momentous decision, but but insofar as what it is going to mean going forward, it could become, you know, I mean, it's funny. Scalia says we should call it SCOTUS care. I actually think that after yesterday, the president is probably finally comfortable calling it Obamacare. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think he embraced it a little while ago, but um, but now but now 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 he can embrace it without any, you know, without, without any fear. Doubt. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it, this who knows? I mean, maybe there'll be another challenge. I haven't heard of it yet, though, but um uh, but I think it was important to remember, and I was trying to find those cases earlier on that, that, uh, these programs that people take for granted, uh, I mean, heck, you know, go back to the 14th amendment and the, the these provisions in law that people associate with being an American and take for granted, right. whether it's a rights to equal protection, they get uh, tested. Exactly. They get tested as for their legitimacy. And then of right. course, Social Security, it, I mean, Medicare, part, part, yeah. part of Atlanta motel, right. I mean, th- these are hard won. I mean, these little battles that we have. I mean, and and uh, you know, eventually we associate them with with our with our legal culture and our uh, political culture. So, who knows? And, we, yeah. and, and we as progressives may think that these results are obvious, but the the close, you know, this whole, you know, for if, if I mean, at least we've finally gotten rid of the notion that this is a unanimous court. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's let's in there. I, this is one thing I wanted to ask you uh, uh, that we had talked about a, a while ago, um, you know, because part of it with uh, Obergefell was um, part of the reason I didn't think it would be five, four, although it was close to being five, four was I, I just had a hard time imagining uh, Roberts and uh, wanting, for example, wanting to write 
the dissent and or, or wanting to write the uh, dissent and loving. Like nobody wants to write the dissent and loving. Um, there has been so much vociferous ink spilled over um, uh, the uh, the sodomy case uh, um, and the Doma case that maybe it made it inevitable that this would not be a nine zero opinion. But you know, you think of Brown, you think of Loving, and and you know, is, is this opinion less because it's not nine zip? Um, not tomorrow and not next week, but I think in the long term for the court, probably. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's something to be said for the notion that when the court's unanimous on a question that we know is divisive, the court is asserting itself as an institution. Right. Um, you know, and, and I mean, we were talking earlier in the, earlier in the, in, in the, in the, in the discussion about per curiams. I mean, look at the value of Cooper versus Aaron, the only time that, you know, the Supreme Court wrote an opinion that all nine justices signed as such. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's going to mean anything um, in the next couple of weeks. I think in the long term, the fact that it's not nine nothing and the fact that these dissents are out there that, you know, I mean, as we discussed, are not the most, I mean, the rhetoric aside, they're not the most ridiculous arguments, mm-hmm. um, I think is unfortunate. And, and it's not, I don't know if there's any question this politically significant that this court could be unanimous on. And, that, I, and, I, think yeah, that, and yeah. I think that's a sad reflection on the state of the current court. And that's why I, I do, I mean, I have to fault, I mean, I think Roberts did the right thing in the Obamacare cases. I, I just wonder whether, and I don't know what keeps him from doing it. I think he's smart enough. I mean, goodness knows he's smart enough. You know, shepherding that court into a nine-zip opinion, which says very little but consolidates around gay marriage, I think was totally possible. And And what's gained... From not doing that, no, I, I disagree. I, I, I think, I, I think, I think Earl Warren did not have to deal with Scalia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Earl Earl Warren had to get Stanley Reed to sign on. Um, you know, with all due respect to Stanley Reed, Stanley Reed is no Scalia, and Scalia <laughs> is no Stanley Reed. Yeah, it was he that the most it could have been was six three. I think that's uh, right. seven two, maybe, Mm-mm. maybe Alito. Yeah, maybe. Oh, no. You, no, it, no, 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 no. You know, you get, we're done. Thing, you get we're in a done. room. You we got to stick a fork you, in this, you guys. Get, we're you, done. Uh, you we're, get in a room. We're starting to say crazy things. No, you get, you get in a room. You know how the opinion is going to come down, right? And you make an agreement that this, you know, we're going to deal with the cases of whether the clergy Christian, has to that's do not, this That's and not that. this court. I mean, that's not yeah. these personalities. And yeah, that's, well, but that's what, that's what I'm kind of, you know, that's what I'm kind of sad about. You know, if we think about like how this could have been better. But like, forget marriage. I mean, I, I mean, forget yeah. marriage. I don't, you know, look at national security where there's less social pressure, right? And there's yeah, little, where there's yeah. less partisanship. Like, I don't think there is a sufficiently hot button question of divisive constitutional law today. Um, where unless the court did a cop out and found a really narrow way to reverse the lower court, not nothing, you know, which we've seen like in Bond, for example, right. last year, I don't think there is a serious fundamental constitutional question of, of surpassing public importance that these justices could agree upon nine to nothing. And, you know, I think that's, you know, folks like to say that in Congress these days, you know, if you introduce legislation declaring that tomorrow is Saturday, you might not get it out <laughs> of the Senate. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, you know, I don't know that the divisiveness and polarization of Congress is is limited to that side of First Street. Yeah, I know that it's not, and and uh, I mean that's my, you know, I just I, I think that's too bad because uh, I, I think there are some times where that would be appropriate and where you would just have a nines up opinion, even if there were three people who would have come out the other way. That there's a there's a value to the institution, and um, and having a, a small opinion. Uh, in, in terms of its reasoning and its, you know, voluminousness, uh, that, you know, uh, 
this is a big step. This is a big step. And to start off in this way, I think is unfortunate. It's a little bit more, you know, in that sense, it's more like Roe than it is like Brown. I think but, that's right. Yeah. I, I think that's right. But, but, but I'm, not, I'm not nearly as convinced, given the way that popular opinion is going, that it's going to have the same kind of backlash. I'm not either. Did. To be yeah. clear, I mean, that's I'm not either. Point. I think it's going to be fine in the long run, but that's just right. for the court. Anyway, you're getting, you're getting frustrated with me, Joe. No. I, uh, no, I mean, right. there's a, there's a, but there's a, I mean, this is, so this is going to end up being the most divisive term the court's had in, I think, five or six years. Um, and, and I think that's a reflection of, you know, that when you actually peel away the procedural, um, technicalities and the easy outs that this is a court that's not going to agree on anything. Yeah. Um, and you know, that is what it is. Um, I think there are good things about that. And I think there are bad things about that. And I think, you know, we can, you know, spend weeks talking about both of those. We can. And, 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 and that dis- those disagreements and the, and the viciousness of those disagreements are not, are not along the usual five, four line or the four, four, one right, line. Not always. Right? No. I mean, if you, if you look beyond just how the splits go, cause I think most of the splits will be what you would expect, I guess, when you look at the final stats package for this term, uh, there'll be outliers. I don't know. But if you just, if you look beyond that and you look at the viciousness of the dissents towards one another, those cross uh, party lines quite a bit. Right. And, and, and I mean, they cross party lines and, you know, the, the, incre- the uptick in people reading their dissent from the bench. I mean, the chief read his dissent from the bench today for the first time in his career. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the rhetoric is only going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, 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 whatever one thinks of the reasoning of these opinions, I, I think there's, there's a value to sharply worded rhetoric, but everything in moderation. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to talking about Article Three courts in Guantanamo. <laughs> <laughs> nope. All right. Spe- speaking Next of time. speaking of sharp rhetoric and things that will <laughs> certainly divide the court. Next time. Next time. Uh, um, well, thank you so much, Steve, Thanks, Steve, on this very busy day for coming and uh, no. and chatting with us. Um, hey, all I know is if I ever have a gay rights case in the Supreme Court, I want it decided on June twenty sixth. That's <laughs> yeah. Why should you be. be any different? It has to. What, what you should fear if you were a against gay rights is that you know if it's not decided by june 25th you're thinking to yourself oh my god i've lost <laughs> right, the court, the court's gonna have a special session on on a weekend even if june 26th is right. on a weekend. <laughs> and, and what's really odd about that i mean and just before we go i mean it's worth it's worth noting it's unusual for the court to hand out opinions on a friday um and it's unusual for the court to hand down opinions like gay marriage on the not last day of the term mm. and yeah, so yeah. there's more than a little speculation out there that someone chose this date on purpose <laughs> what do you think if, if you're a betting man and maybe you are a betting man i don't know but if you were a betting man steve what would you what would you say the chances were that this was engineered to be on june 26th i would say the chances are that it was not consciously engineered to be today until at the very earliest earlier this week yeah um and that maybe one of justice kennedy's clerks put a bug in his ear about how if it's handed down on friday um, that means something, but I, I'm still taking maybe 25. This is not a court that operates that way. So I'll go, I'll go 25%. It is unusual though, right? It, it it's is, unusual, yeah, yeah. but you know, the, you don't the, think the, so, Joe, my magic eight ball says, ask again later. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, listen, this is a court that hands down 70 opinions a year. At some point that small data set, everything's going to be unusual. Yeah. This mm. is like seeing, uh, seeing Jesus in a, in a, in a, um, in a, in a piece of toast. <laughs> Or, or eventually the the chimpanzee play Shakespeare. Yeah, but boy, or, right? No, right, that wow. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
please don't call this podcast eventually the chimpanzee plays Shakespeare. No, we're going to call it Jesus Toast. No, we're okay, not going to. I don't. I don't know what we're going to call it. I don't, but but I I know we can call it awesome because you were our guest today, and uh, I appreciate thanks, that. Yeah, there we go. We can call it awesome. Yeah, there we go. There All we right, go, guys. Uh, until thanks. next time, Steve. Thanks, guys. All right, bye bye. Bye.